Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern Lapp. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today, we'll continue our conversation with Mariana Azar, Director and Chair of the Institutional Review Boards, IRBs, of the New York City Department of Education. If you haven't yet listened to part one, we urge you to check it out. Ms. Azar's comments represent her own views and not necessarily those of the Department of Education. Welcome back, Mariana. Thank you so much for having me. You said that the DOE's IRB is unusual because it is both a regulatory ethics board and a standards ethics board. What does that mean? Yeah, so, you know, in the United States, IRBs are governed by Title 45 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 46. These regulations define the rules and responsibilities for institutional review, which is required for all research that receives support directly or indirectly from the United States federal government. And then, you know, beyond that, the IRBs themselves are regulated by the Office of Human Research Protections within the Department of Health and Human Services. So for these purposes, the New York City Department of Education's Institutional Review Board is a legally constituted body that applies the rules and regulations set forth by the federal government for the purposes of reviewing research that's carried out either by or on behalf of the New York City public school system in accordance with these federal rules and regulations. So that's one function that we serve. But beyond that, and this is something that we've done since 1980, which I think again is is something that's quite unique to us because for the most part, even the federal rules and regulations and the legal requirements for having a legally constituted IRB, this is all fairly recent. This is all, let's say from 1994 onwards. Since 1980, the New York City public school system has had the equivalent of an IRB. So they used to call themselves the Proposal Review Committee. Then shortly thereafter, they began the Ethics Review Committee name. And then they went through various renditions. But the purpose of this body has always been for reviewing external proposals to go into New York City public schools and to involve New York City public school students, parents, or staff in a research study. Again, The reason that this body was constituted was because as the largest and most diverse school district in the country, as early as 1980, it was clear to the individuals that were serving in various administrative capacities, both on the school level and on the central level, that our school system was highly saturated with researchers, that all sorts of studies were being carried out with our students. And some of these studies were possibly questionable in nature. Some of these studies were, you know, using us for the convenience of the researcher and not for the New York City public school system. And so what the New York City public school system did and continues to do is establish internal standards for what constitutes an appropriate study to be carried out in our school system with our study subjects, right? So from this perspective, you can say that we look at things like convenience sampling. So is the research actually related to education? And again, that's quite a broad criteria, right? I mean, as as we've said, education research can be a million and one things, but if it's not one of those million and one things, then why is it something that has to happen in the school system? Are you asking to utilize New York City public school students because it's like shooting fish in a barrel for the purposes of you, the researcher, and the research that you're intending? Beyond that, we have various regulations that are 
set forth in our transfers regulations that look at things like the kind of data that ought not be collected, right? So for example, we're not allowed to ask about immigration status, but yet your research intends to collect specifically that information. That's a standard that may be, that may be appropriate for your institution, but is not appropriate for the New York City public school system and the New York City Board of Education, right? So we have internal standards for what the research should aim to do for how the research is carried out. And beyond that, for a justification that we expect from the research community for conducting the research with our students or with our families or with our staff. Beyond that, we also have very strict criteria regarding the disruption of standard instruction time or work time for the purposes of the research. The reason for that is we actually see that disruption as a research-related risk, meaning if you as a student have been removed from the classroom for the purposes of participating in the research study, you're now missing out on that standard instruction for the purposes of participating in the study. And yet the benefit of the study is not to supplement what you otherwise would have received in the classroom. So that's something that we would generally not permit. And we also look at things like how the students are going to be recruited, how the parents are going to be recruited, right? So what kind of language is going to be sent to the intended study subjects to communicate the nature of the research and the duration of the participation, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, we are both a regulatory body that applies the federal rules and regulations governing human subjects research in the United States, but we also are a research standards committee. And I think that those standards are regulatory based in the sense that we look at internal DOE regulations. But I also think that it's ethics based in the sense that we have ethical standards for what constitutes sound design for a research study. And beyond that, for what constitutes a necessary research study from the perspective of education research. How do the IRBs work, interact or over lap with FERPA's work, FERPA being the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act? Yeah, so as I mentioned, one of the, the core requirements for research participation is informed consent. When you're involving children in a research study, the research is governed by subpart D of the federal rules and regulations. And so from that perspective, the research is required to seek assent from the child and then consent from the parent for the involvement of the child in the research study. Depending on the level of risk associated with the research, it may be sufficient to have a single parent sign the consent form, or in the case of high-risk trials, both parents may be legally required to sign the consent form for the child's participation in the research. Because a lot of our research, as I mentioned in some of the examples that I gave earlier, also looks at student-level data, right? So specifically student records, such as student assignments or student grades or student disciplinary records or any type of information that's maintained by the Department of Education that would otherwise be subject to FERPA. What this means for our purposes as an IRB is we look at not only the consent for the research participation and the use of that data for research purposes. Because again, as a reminder, the definition of human subject is not only the direct interaction or intervention with the human subject, but also the collection or obtainment of private information about them. Then that can happen independent of any other 
additional level of interaction or intervention. So any study that aims to collect data that is otherwise subject to FERPA must also account for seeking and documenting that FERPA authorization from the parent or demonstrating why the research meets one or more of the FERPA exceptions as set forth in that regulation. What are the issues you see with the collection and use of big data? Specifically student level data? Yes. I mean, I think I would reframe it as, how does the use of student data for research purposes factor into the other concerns that one may have about big data? So I think it's yet another variable. I think it's yet another piece of information about someone that's collected and used and used for purposes that may not be entirely known or understood at this particular moment. So what concerns me specifically is the sort of the full profile of the person that is developed, right? So all the information that is already collected about us from all the other channels, our social media platforms, our, our spending habits, our, you know, I don't know, the things that we do for fun, all the things about us that is already known. How does the information that's collected from the student records factor into that? Where does it go? What is it being used for? What does it say about me as a person? How will it define my future prospects? What does my education record, so let's say specifically, what does my, my disciplinary record say about me? One of the things that brought me to the two of you is the podcast that you did on specifically the predictive analysis of students and their future potential violent tendencies or illegal actions, right? So what can you ascertain about me from my student record? What, what predictive analysis can be made in utilizing my student record for research purposes? I think that these are the areas that a lot of us haven't really given sufficient thought to. I think also the other thing that really troubles me is, you know, while a lot of this data is collected for research purposes and therefore is subject to consent and FERP authorization, the DOE also shares a lot of student level data without necessarily parental consent or FERPA authorization because it fits into one or more of those exemption criteria. The, the sharing of that data is usually done for legitimate purposes. So for the purposes of analyzing or developing some kind of large-scale study where you, you conduct the longitudinal analysis of whatever factor you're exploring. But yet it is that sharing, right? It, it is that sort of casual treatment of that data and the release of it outside of the official DOE channels. That's the area that I'm uncomfortable with or that I, as an IRB professional, often think about. What are some of the ways that we can minimize some of these risks? You can reduce the volume of research that's carried out. And I mean that quite directly. So I think that there are many studies that are duplicates of other studies that have already been conducted and not for the purposes of ensuring the accuracy of the original study, but because the researcher is unaware that this research has already been done. I think a lot of research is too small scale in the sense that it really looks at things from a very narrow perspective and the findings are not truly generalizable. I think a lot of researchers, specifically graduate student researchers, 
also don't necessarily have the kind of faculty support and oversight that they need in order to do sound and ethical research. And so from that perspective, I would argue that additional faculty oversight or a commitment on the part of faculty to really supervise their graduate students in the conduct of research is required. I also think that the DOE needs to set clear criteria regarding what kind of research is needed. What we often see is you know, 50 studies submitted in a five-month period that look at exactly the same question. And yet there are 500 other questions that are far more pressing that receive absolutely no attention. That's, that's worrisome to me because that means that a lot of things that require exploration, that require additional information for sound decision-making or a change in policy, are not being considered because the DOE is not really communicating the need to explore these topics to the research community at large. We work very closely with a lot of research institutes and a lot of research institutions. So I think that if this became a more formal process whereby we were to communicate at the start of a school year, for example, that these are the things that in prior years we felt we need additional information about, maybe more focus would be given to those specific topics. But there's a, I don't know how to frame this, there's just a disconnect between the research and between the research subjects, between the things that the research subjects actually need in order to address some of the concerns that they're facing and the kind of research that's being carried out. I understand that New York State recently passed some legislation on dealing with research and data. Do you have a sense yet? I know it was fairly recent, but do you have a sense of whether this will address any of those kinds of issues? Uh, so I think you're referring to New York State Education Law 2D? Yeah. I would say, you know, it's unclear how it applies to research on the whole, specifically because the only research entity that the law is applicable to is the New York City, well, all, all public school systems. So universities are exempted from the law which means that only research carried out by public school systems is subject to the requirements in New York State Education Law 2D. I don't know how the requirements set out there will impact the type of research that's carried out. I can tell you that our concern for ensuring that informed consent is sought and documented is becoming more profound in light of the, the requirements outlined in that law. But beyond that, I don't know that the law was written with education in mind. And so I don't know how much of an impact it can have on, on the regulating or overseeing research on the whole. So other than researchers, most people involved in schools or in the general public probably don't even know that the IRBs exist. Yeah. Given everything that you've been saying, what kind of conversations would you like to see people outside the IRBs having? So as listeners are listening to this, and they're thinking, oh my God, you know, wow, this is a lot of stuff. What are things that they could be talking about in their schools or parents' associations? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm a parent. I have a soon-to-be four-year-old child. She's, her birthday is actually tomorrow. One of the things that I would want, whenever I talk to my fellow moms, what I often communicate is, do you look at the things that your child brings home in their backpack? Do you read them? Do you sign the things that are provided to you for signatures without reading them? Have you considered what that really means? Do you know what your child does in the course of the school day beyond attending class and participating in standard instruction? 
Do you know what kind of activities that are being provided by this wonderful after-school program that's being delivered for research purposes entail and what kind of information about your child is being collected? All of us as parents, I think, are highly protective of our children, specifically of our children's privacy, or at least we're not, we ought to be, or, you know, we're not, then I think, you know, I need to hear why we're not. From that perspective, I want parents to recognize that there's a lot of research happening, that a lot of that research directly involves their children, that there is a body that is overseeing this research and that does the work of hopefully protecting their children as participants in these studies, but that their parental responsibilities are not excused in the context of us already doing this work, that a lot of the work still falls to the parent, right? So specifically, what I would say to parents is look more closely at the kind of information that is in that backpack, read the document before signing it, consider the impact of research participation, work with researchers to obtain the findings of their research and consider the way that the findings may actually benefit your child specifically. And really be in communication with the schools, get a sense of what's happening and why it's happening. If you have concerns about the research that's being carried out, communicate those concerns, right? Don't ignore them. If you think that something is being done for the purposes of benefiting the researcher and by no means benefiting your child, communicate that concern to the IRB and to the school. If you think that a lot of information about your child is collected and you're unclear about how that information is going to be used, who it's going to be shared with, how it's going to impact your child's educational outcomes in the future, then that's something that we need to have a conversation about. And lastly, get involved. These boards are meant to include members of the community. Parents are members of the community. And you don't have to volunteer for the New York City Department of Education's Institutional Review Board. There are hundreds of IRBs that would be happy to have you as a community member. But be aware that this is a part of what happens in the school system and that it's not a minor or an insignificant part. Thank you, Mariana Azar of the New York City Department of Education Institutional Review Boards. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.